Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Claybell, your host, and with me today is Caleb Wells of Typhon Group. Hey, y'all. Hey, Caleb. And we got a good guest today, all the way from, was it Mauritius? Mauritius. Mauritius, yeah. It's Patrick Smakia. Say hi, hi. Patrick. Hi, Patrick. Hi. <laughs> hi. So nice for you to, to spend some time with today. It's so nice for you to invite yeah. me. Thanks so much. We've been recording Ruby Rogue since 2011, and we've talked to a lot of people who have had a really deep influence, not only on the programming community, but also on the Ruby community. And as we've talked to these people, it's become apparent to me that we talk a lot about the things that make them interesting that they've done. But we don't really get into how they got into programming or how they came up in their career, how they got to be the person who invented whatever library or or technique that they came on the show to talk about. And so I put together a show where we actually highlight these things. We talk to them about how they got into programming. We talk to them about how they got into Ruby, maybe how they got into Rails. We get a little bit deep into what makes them tick and why they are the way they are. And then we talk about what they're working on. We talk about the things that make them well-known or make them interesting. And a lot of times, it's the stuff that goes beyond the code that really makes these people tick and makes them the kind of people that we want to hear about. And so I put together a show called My Ruby Story. You can find it at myrubystory.com. And it's where I interview these people and just get the stories of these people and how they came into programming. So if you want to hear inspirational stories or get ideas on how you can actually advance your career, then go check it out at myrubystory.com. So from what I understand, we're going to be talking about solid principles and then a little bit about uh, the future of .NET and what you think it is. Yeah, I think, I think it's a good program. Excellent. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself first? Just so, your background? Yeah, sure, sure. So I'm uh, 44, but I started coding like, well, like when I was 10, like uh, many of us. Yeah. So like uh, more than three decades coding. I did a lot of C++ in company. I moved on .NET at the early beginning in uh, 2002, 2003, okay. It was very, very exciting time because uh, I, I bet on the, the right horse. Like I worked a lot in .NET since the beginning. Right. And hopefully now the world, at least the Microsoft world, but more and more the other world as well, is based on .NET. So it grow. Since 2005, I'm developing a tool. I mean, I created a tool for developer mm-hmm. that is named NDPen. So that's for .NET developer and it's a static analyzer. Yeah. Okay, so I'm full time on it on it with the team now. It's going good. It's going good because .NET is going good. Yeah, there, there, right. there are a lot of features to do and uh, have been done. A lot of features to do. Yes, yeah, so is Independ is, is that a commercial product or is it open source? Yeah, it's a or? commercial product. Yeah, it's okay. a commercial product with a Visual Studio extension, right. and also uh, you can uh, put it in your C CD, and mm-hmm. also you can you have also an Azure DevOps extension. Okay, so gotcha. the, the idea is that, uh, and you have some rule sets. It's not Roslyn based, actually. It's pretty complementary to Roslyn mm-hmm. because uh, also complementary to ReSharper and also to Sonocube. I call gotcha. the, all the big name in static analysis because right. NDPEN is more about seeing your code base as a wall, mm-hmm. okay, and embracing it as a wall. And, uh, and it's reporting a lot about like code structure, code architecture. Code metrics and uh, mm-hmm. also uh, code evolutions, mm-hmm. trending and graph dependency matrix and and things like that. So it has 
many features. And what is interesting, and it's really related to the solid principle we're going to talk about, is that for independent code is a database. So, mm-hmm. and it has a C, with C sharply query, you can query the code the same way you would query with a SQL on a relational uh, database. So okay. this is the, the big feature. And uh, this is very interesting uh, because when you consider various principles, like the solid principle or the abstractness versus instability principle or whatever whatever principle. If you see code that data, you can start querying the code, okay, and, and trying to abide by the principle from fact extracted from the code. Because one problem, I think we agree on that, one problem with Solid is that, uh, I, learned, I learned this word actually recently, it's interesting, it's about cargo cult. People say Solid are like cargo cult. Like, uh, do you see what I mean? Like, yeah. you have some developers, maybe they're not so experimented or maybe not so interested by, by what they're doing. I, I don't know. And they justify whatever they do with Solid. Okay, look, it's Solid. Right. Even though it can be crap, but look, it's Solid. It satisfies right. this people on this principle. So it, it can be seen as cargo cult. And what's interesting is that if you start to data mine your code base mm-hmm. with facts, mm-hmm. right. you can somehow eliminate these sorts of behavior and start start talking about the real things and not about the, the subjective things. And I know Solid, you don't know, whatever, you know. Well, so for people who don't know Solid or are not, not familiar with it, how would you describe it? So Solid, there, there is a, someone uh, very famous in the, in the software community as a whole, mm-hmm. uh, Robert Cecil Martin. Right. So this guy, he... He invented some some principle. Mm-hmm. He invented several principles, not only the solid principle, because actually solid is an acronym. Okay, mm-hmm. it's with five letters, so there is five principles. This guy, after consulting a lot in many many companies, the real world. That's very important to be close to the real world. Mm-hmm. What's happening in the real world? He noticed that you should use object oriented this way. So it's mostly about object oriented. Okay. Right. Object-oriented is very powerful, but the problem, it's also very easy to, to use everything we have, like inheritance, encapsulation, static, whatever you want. Everything we have in object is very easy to misuse. You can really screw have. up some object-oriented programming. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and frankly, a lot of team and a lot of people and a lot of projects are right. being screwed up by not applying properly the object-oriented. So solid... These are some uh, principles that you can try to abide by and mm-hmm. uh, to better to have better object-oriented code. Right. So I think that's a good way to put it. You try to abide by it because you know I'm I'm a little bit familiar with solid, and to really be like 100% solid throughout your code is really really tough. So you know I try to do my best at following the principles, and we'll go through each one of them. But to get fully solid, you know, I think is, is difficult. So uh, I try to do the best I can. Right. You said that if someone goes and looks at the principles and said, well, I use solid, their code can still be horrible. It can still be poorly written, poorly yeah. constructed. It's more of you have enough knowledge to know when you need to use the principles and when they would best suit the code you're yeah. writing, right? Yeah, and there is one, one point uh, very important is that Solid is about code maintainability, but also mm-hmm. something that was not popular because we have to say it was been coined in the 90s. It's also about testability. So maintainability right. and testability. If your code is solid, it should be very easily testable. 
But I, I like also to think that if you apply TDD, personally, I'm not a fan of TDD, but mm-hmm. when I write code, I also write tests at the same time. So I'm not test first, but I'm right. code and test at the same time. Right. I'm not sure if, we, if it's a driven uh, something. <laughs> I'm not sure if there is an acronym for that. But I, I, I like to, to write them both at the same time. And when you are very, very serious about tests, mm-hmm. and uh, nowadays, for me, test is more important than solid. That's, for me, test is above. It's, it's more important. Mm-hmm. But if you are very serious about test, at the end of the day, you should have also solid code. It goes hand in hand. Okay. And it goes also with maintainable code. Like if your code is very easily testable, Right. That certainly is very maintainable, maintainable as well. So maybe let's talk about the, the five principles. Yeah. So I guess we won't have time to go in details with all. But there are, there are a few things interesting mm-hmm. to say. First, you have five principles. And four are really about uh, using in- interface and inheritance. Mm-hmm. Okay, using polymorphism and uh, all these things. And the, the first one, which is the single responsibility principle, right. it's more about the code organization. Like which logic I gonna put in which class, mm-hmm. okay? And, and something interesting also, uh, Sean, you said very hard to to be solid on the whole code base, and I totally agree. But something that you absolutely must be very careful: a part of your code base is your domain, okay? So right. nowadays, most of software shop, I guess at least, I hope so, are very serious about uh, modelizing their domain. Mm-hmm. Okay, there is domain-driven design. That is uh, many important things. So the, the important thing is to be solid, at least on the domain. And then what you have around the domain, all, all the, the usage, the, the UI, the persistence or wh- whatever you want, maybe you can be a little bit less solid about that, but the domain is very, very important. So maybe about what you said, like it's hard to be solid on everything. So first be very solid on the domain and also make sure that it's absolutely 100% tested. I mean, at least 100% covered by test. It's very important with all the assertion and everything you can have on it. So I, I think mm-hmm. to me, it's that this, this is very important. So if we look at the five principles, the interesting thing is that the single responsibility principle, so this is the S in this mm-hmm. acronym, is about code organization. And the four others is more about usage of code, um, of OOP, of object-oriented design. Yeah, single so responsibility the- principle, I think is one of the ones that I try to follow the most. You know, kind of like, don't repeat yourself. Dry, keep everything separated. Yeah, right. yeah. Keep right. it simple, simple, stupid. Loose yeah. coupling, tight cohesion, things like that. So uh, make sure that uh, everything you're using encapsulation correctly and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very important principle and it could be itself a few principles together. So the definition, the initial definition of the, of the principle was a class should have a single responsibility. And this responsibility should be entirely encapsulated by the class. Then this principle has been rephrased as by a class should have only one reason to change. Okay, so right. this is still a bit obscure, which is normal because we are trying to summarize something complex, code right. organization, which logic you put in which class in one or two sentences. So it, can, it cannot work very well. So the idea is first is that in your class, you don't, you don't put various concerns. If you have a domain class, so now I'm talking about a domain class, mm-hmm. okay, uh, whatever it's a person or an employee or whatever you want to be, an other employee, etc. In this class, you, you have to avoid having things like persistence, having things about like threadings, okay, and uh, all, all these cross-cutting concerns. 
that should be dedicated to some more technical class because mm-hmm. of course you want you want this kind of things in your in your code base the domain must not be polluted by this kind of things okay so the first thing to remove from your domain class is this kind of uh, cross-cutting concern yeah so this is Next. separation of concerns is really what you're trying to accomplish with the single yes exactly principle. yeah i think single responsibility principle encapsulate the separation of concern. It's also, once you have no more concern into your domain classes, what, what you want to put in it? So only one reason to change. So for example, here there is a uh, famous example from uh, the creator like Robert Cecil Martin that you have an employee class, okay? So with name, address, and phone, whatever you want. And then you have things like compute pay or report hours in this class, Okay. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that these things doesn't fit well together because when you want to change how the payroll is done, you're certainly not gonna touching about the report hours things, which is more about the, the human resourcing things, like the, 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 the people that are managing the employee. So Robert Cecil Martin used to say it's about the people. You have to try to 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 separate like if you have things related to human resources, if you have things to related to payroll or, or whatever. You should keep it separated in various class or classes of your domain. Right, okay? because if you have multiple developers working on a project, and you're always going to have multiple developers, it can yeah. be you yeah. six months from now, right? You're a different developer at that point. If you have two different conflicting, you know, logic inside of there and you change one, right? There could be un- unintended consequences for the other that you don't realize, especially if you don't have tests, which exactly. again is why tests are so important. So yeah, absolutely. It's it's even worse. And also a class is also a unit of encapsulation. So if you start having different kind of logic in a class, they're going to access the same states. They're going to be in competition for the same states. And because in the class, even the private states are not encapsulated if you look at at the class level. So everything can access everything. And and, and then that's that's where where the, the real problems are coming from. So actually, I, I, from, from what we say now, we talk, but it's not so easy to grasp for someone. So this is why I like to go, I like to come back as code, as database, as data. Code, you have to see code as data. So how can we summarize what we said? Like if you look like code as data, first you can write rules so you can query your code, such class to make sure it's not using threading, for example or it's not using entity framework or, wh- or whatever, okay? So first you can have that, that kind of rule. Then you can have some other rule about like the size, like, hey, mm-hmm. look at that class. It's uh, it's extremely big. It's like uh, it's, it's 27 methods and uh, 15 properties and uh, everything is accessing everything. So if you look at the, the code size, okay, with code metrics, things like number of fields, number of properties, number of methods, number of instance methods, static methods, whatever. So you can have some some kind of code smell. And here, this, the anti-pattern is the code, code class. If a class is getting too big, it does too much. Okay, mm-hmm. And this can be easily measured with things like number of line of code or, or cyclomatic complexity for method. So here, you can use the, the, the NDPEN or, or the static analyzer to try to look at your code as data and try to extract this kind of properties from your code. Okay, so this is more objective than the subjective discussion we have had. Then you have also some interesting metrics, another metrics, which is named 
Elcom Lake of Cohesion of Methods. Okay. okay. So basically, th this metrics you in a good range if most of your methods are using most of your states. So because often when a class starts to have more than res one responsibility, you see a group of field very tight with a group of method, and then and, and, and this repeat one or, or twice or, or more inside your class. So you can use this metric. I won't go into the detail, but these metrics have a tricky formula that gives good range and, and bad range for, for this kind of thing. So, okay. so this is about the, the code organization. Mm -hmm. So something also important that you can also verify with code querying and uh, static analysis is, is your class is POCO, okay? Uh, yeah. Plain old CLR object. Is it using only your other domain class and things like string, bool, uh, integer, etc. Okay, so very raw tip. You don't want to start using, uh, especially you don't want to start using cross-cutting concern class like threading and things like that. That then becomes a very complicated class to to handle. And finally, on the single responsibility principle, you have many uh, GoF design pattern, things like decorator or things like that, that can very nicely put some logic outside your class, but dependency injection also to some extent. You can also add logic later. Later, you're not forced to put all the logic at the at the same time, and uh, right. this is another way to delegate logic. Cool. So the the next principle is uh, open closed, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the open closed principle, mm -hmm. uh, OCP. So basically, the definition is module, which can be actually classes or maybe a few classes, a group of classes. Module yeah. should be open for extension and uh, closed for modification. Right. Okay. Right. So what does it say basically is that what you want to say by extension is mostly about derivation. Mm -hmm. Like you have a base class that you can extend. Right. So what does it say is that you have to choose very carefully your point of variation. Okay. Mm -hmm. The terminology is important because this is a very related principle name also point of variation. But when you design your class, okay, you, you have to very, to be very careful about your point of variation to make sure that When you want to extend it, all the new code goes in the derivative class, a derivative class. And in the same way, you should be close to modification. It means that the code in your base class shouldn't change. This is very important because if you change, if you start changing the behavior in your base class, you're going to break, probably you're going to break a lot of derivative class. Right, right. We've actually run to this with the project we just finished up. We have a bunch of clients and the way the databases were initially set up is that they've got the same names for the tables, but different columns depending on what your specialty is. And mm. we've come in and we're, we're rebuilding it from scratch, but we're trying to you know take it in, in chunks. And we basically had to do that very thing. We had to determine what is the base class that all of these specialties have in common. And then we can derive off of them for each one separately so that we don't get into these collisions or into issues. But at that point, if you touch the base class, you're destroying everything, right? Because mm -hmm. you may be adding something that's in one, but not in the others, and you run into all kinds of issues. So very important. Very important. Also, there is something that is more and more widely accepted. Most of the time, base class is not the solution. It's more about interface most of the time. Gotcha. Most of the time, the idea of base class, because you have all these patterns that can let you add some behaviors, mm -hmm. okay, some logic. So 
most of the time you want to share interface, which is contract actually, and we say contract with no behavior. It's only a syntactic contract and also semantic contract to some extent, depending on what your language can offer to that. For example, C Sharp A just introduced the non label, which is more more syntax, more more things you can constrain and you and you control it. So this principle is nice, but most of the time I would say avoid avoid base class most of the time. Gotcha. So this principle so, is one of those that I think you know it's easy to understand it, but it's really hard to be so disciplined to follow it. You know, because you're always going to go. I just need to add this one little thing, and I don't want to make a new so, class. Your yeah, it's also about the, the prediction because if you want print or variation at, at the beginning, you don't know what is going to, to vary. And as I like to say, like if prediction was easy, we'd be all billionaire in Bitcoin, right? So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so well, and, and that makes so sense prediction is say, very hard. Um, use an interface, right? Because if you prefer most of using the time, an interface, yeah, yeah mo- most of the time, in most cases, yeah. you don't run into, into that issue. It's very related to the tenet. Fool me once, but don't fool me twice. Right. Yeah. So basically, I would say don't try to anticipate so much. Mm-hmm. This is the KISS principle. Keep it simple. Stupid. Right. Don't yes. try to, uh, to be so smart to anticipate. And then, for example, you're driving circle and the, tomorrow you're driving square. Okay, now I know I have an abstraction. I have an abstraction to put that. So don't try to anticipate so much. And finally, on this principle, there is something very interesting. It's very related to testability. Because when you write tests, it's a very good opportunity to see what is going to vary. Okay, because typically when you are unit testing, you're just testing one side of your logic, just one little context in your logic. So the writing test, once again, it's very good for the, the solid principle because once again, it will help you see what is going to vary, what you want to mock into your test. And then it will be a very good opportunity to see uh, when you develop your class, what is going to vary or not, because you are writing tests that is uh, logically telling you that. So couldn't you end up with lots and lots of interfaces for every little version of change that you have for your classes? So actually, this is more about the, the other pattern, so especially about the interface segregation principle, which is the I in solid. Mm-hmm. So this pattern, basically, it says that uh, you should have a lot very very small and very focused interface. Like okay. avoid, basically avoid, avoid the, the large interface. But before going into this one, let's start with the list cops substitution pattern to follow yeah. the, the solid acronym. Because to me, those two are very related. So basically the list cops substitution pattern, so method that use references to bus class, I mean interface, must be able to use objects of derivative classes without knowing it. So basically, you get a pointer, I mean, a reference to an interface or a base class, but we prefer to talk about interface as we, mm-hmm. as we just said. Okay, so you have an interface, a, a reference to an interface, and you're absolutely not supposed to know what's behind. So what, what does it really say? For example, suppose you have an interface iBird. Certainly, you want to adopt the method fly because, but the problem yeah. is, not all birds are flying. Not all so, birds fly, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. So if you if you derive ostrich from iBird and then you, you have, have the problem. fly on there, you can't substitute that exactly. for the base because ostriches don't fly, right? And typically, you get something like not supported exception, 
or mm-hmm. invalid operation exception. There is something very interesting. I haven't seen much in literature, but this is something I've stumbled on it, and I'm sure you've stumbled on it too. It's in the design of the .NET framework. You have this this interface which you name iCollection, and you have also iList. Yeah. And if you look, all the array are implemented those interface. And this is a problem. This is a big violation of the cost substitution principle because these interface have methods like add and remove and insert. But those things, you cannot do it in an array because it's the fixed size. You cannot add anything. And if you try to call these methods on an array, which in the real world, it happens. It happens to me several times. Yeah, yeah. Definitely in the real world. Then you get some not supported exception because when you see an I list, you think it's a list behind. So what's interesting is that in, a, I think it was .NET framework 4.5, they've introduced I read only list. Okay, so you don't have more add, insert, etc. Okay, but for some uh, uh, syntactic reason and some compatibility, ascendant compatibility reason, iList cannot implement iRead-only-list, which is very unfortunate. This is one of the, the few glitches you can find in the framework because of its very historic history. But just to tell you that these things really happens, and even even the very smart guy that uh, designed at first the framework had some violation of. Uh, uh, the list of substitution principle and and these things they these have a lot of a lot of consequences. Yeah, yeah. So basically, what it says is that be very careful when you design your interface, okay, and don't put too much in your interface. This principle is very related to the next one, which is the I in solid, which is the mm-hmm. interface segregation principle. So client should not be forced to depend on a, on a method it won't use. So basically. This is also close to the single responsibility principle because basically you violate this principle. You don't segregate properly your interface when your interface does too much. Right. Okay? You're trying to find the right method and you're like, where is it? Because there's 50 here. Yeah. There are 50 years. Yeah. And you're not going to use them all. And, and, no. and there is this crazy... You, you remember the lack of cohesion method I just talked at the beginning? Right. The matrix is right. the same for the, the interface. There is no cohesion. If you have an interface and you're not supposed to use most of the method, then your interface does too much and you are violating the interface segregation principle. And there is something very interesting is that if you look at both principles, so the list of substitution and the interface segregation, they are very much two sides of the same coin. Okay. Gotcha. So basically the list of says that if your interface is too big, then you are asking too much to the classes that implement it. Some classes won't be able to implement all the methods and will finally throw things like not supported in exception, okay? And if you're on the client side, then this is the interface segregation principle. Like if you are doing too much, your clients are not going to use use everything, okay? You throw too much with your 15 method to your client, they're not going to use everything. So so for example, you can look at there are a few interfaces in the .NET framework. You have, you have, you have this e-disposable, Everybody likes it is possible. Right. Okay. Everybody is using it. So basically, this interface is it's very tiny responsibility. I'm not sure you can even that uh, that responsibility. And and right. we can imagine. And actually, in the independent code, we have some kind of part like that. You can imagine having a list of disposable, and bam, mm-hmm. bam, bam. When you want, you can you can dispose them all together. But you absolutely don't know what's behind. If it's a connection or if it's a, a graphical things or whatever, you have no idea right. what is it, but you, you know you can dispose it. Yeah, it's one of those things 
again, um, I guess, right kind of separation concerns. You don't need to know how it's done. You just need to know that it is done, right? It's done. Um, it's done. But yeah. also, you don't need to, to see too much. Like typically, when you got uh, an interface toward an array, the interface is not supposed to present you the add and, and insert and, and things like that. It's, it's too much. So, so I think these two principles, so it's nice to fit them into the solid because every, everybody remembers solid. But the same way, the single responsibility principle is a very big principle that could be, could be several principles, actually. I think these mm-hmm. two ones are very, are very uh, related. And then finally, we have the dependency inversion principle. Okay, the deep. So it's also related to the interface, but this time it's not going to tell you, it's not going to help you designing the interface, but it's going to help you organize the dependency into your code structure. A few years ago at a JavaScript conference, I was approached by Nader Dabit. And you might know him for the React Native Radio podcast. He's also a developer evangelist for Amazon. And when he came to me, we had a conversation about React Native. And the thing that I love about React Native is that it's approachable, it's web technology, and it's cross-platform. And it makes a lot of things really easy for developers to jump in and do interesting things on mobile with JavaScript. So we've had this show now running for several years, React Native Radio, where we interview people about the React Native ecosystem, some of the things that are coming out in React and how they affect mobile, and other options that you have for mobile development. So if you're doing mobile development, you're doing it in JavaScript, you're looking for a good option, or maybe you're just trying to stay current with React Native, then go check out React Native Radio at reactnativeradio.com. I think this is probably one of the easier ones for thing, for people to get, you know, yeah. is is depend on an interface instead of concrete class because you run into all kinds of issues. Yeah. yeah. yeah High-level modules just mostly depends on low-level module, and mm-hmm. low-level modules should be mostly abstraction. When you say abstraction, also it's a, it can be also enumeration and things like that you want right. to have in your domain. So here also, things about your domain. Typically, yeah. you want a lot of abstraction into your domain. Okay, and typically the domain should be uh, the, the lower component into your, stru- your code structure. Mm-hmm. Mo- everybody can use it and can depend on it. Mostly, it should it should be uh, interfaces. Okay, because actually a dependency is a risk because when things are changing, everybody that is using that thing, right. they, they can be screwed. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Thing, yeah. Sorry, no, 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 no. We're an adult podcast. You're good. That's a safe okay. word. You're fine. <laughs> we, we, we just together. Okay. <laughs> so basically, what is interesting is that a class, a concrete class with some logic mm-hmm. inside, right. is much subject to changes than an interface. Right. Okay. And right. this is why you should mostly depend on the interface because they are rarely changing, especially mm-hmm. if they have been properly designed with the two principles we just discussed, okay, right. if they are very narrow and uh, very straight to the point. So there are very uh, few chances that uh, a class is changing. Uh, sorry, an interface. So an interface is a contract, okay, and a contract mm-hmm. is less subject to change than an abstraction. What is interesting is that the dependency inversion principle is very related with the dependency injection. And right. this is interesting because the acronym are very similar, DI and DIP, okay, right. DIP. Yeah? Right. Because the dependency injection is really about mostly depend about about your interface, and we have a layer that are weaving the interface with the implementation, but the code that are really consuming all the interfaces is not supposed to know what's behind the interface, right. and it's related also to the Liskov principle because you're not supposed to know what's behind, 
You just have a bunch of interface, okay? And right. so all these DI things, this is very, uh, this is nowadays, this is very popular. Uh, I'm not a super fan, I have to say, because what I see in the real world is that uh, this layer where all the interfaces are bound with all the classes, mm. at the end of the day, it becomes a big, big mess to get. So you really have to make sure that that these things become a mess. So yeah, I'm not such, such a big fan. Sometimes it can be, it's some people consider it as an anti-pattern, actually. But nowadays, anyway, it's popular. And this is interesting because it's very related with the mostly used interface and not class principle. Well, I think it goes to, right, um, use these patterns and these principles intelligently, right? Use them yeah. in the way that they're intended, not necessarily in the way that you intend, right? Mm. So, And this is why also if you consider code as data, Mm-hmm. You can try to to do some kind of measurement, and right. here I'm I'm not going into uh, details, but actually uh, the, the, the dependency invasion principle can be measure objectively with a few code metrics in a, mm-hmm. in a, the right way. So one of the metrics are about the abstractness versus instability principle. Okay, so Robert Cecil Martin, the guy that coined the solid principle, right. he invented some some uh, metrics to measure the DIP. Gotcha. Okay, so basically these metrics are stability and abstractness. So abstractness is easy to understand. It's about the ratio of interface enumeration versus the, the ratio concrete class. The, the instability is a bit different. It's about how much code are relying on you. Okay, and the idea is that you are very stable if a lot of code is depending on you. So basically, you want very stable code with this code metric that is not so trivial. Huh? You have to look at several formula. But basically, if you are very stable, you want to be very uh, abstractness. I mean, have a lot of abstraction. If you are very unstable, typically you want that to be classes. And and this is, there is one word which is interesting is that Robert Sissimata, he defined the zone of pain. Okay. <laughs> yeah. the, the zone of pain is when you are very concrete and everybody depends on you. Yeah. Okay. So you can, you can have a diagram. And in this diagram, yeah. in the lower left corner, this is the right. zone of pain. And if your classes or components are inside this zone, right. then you are, you are in a pain. Typically, you can imagine that the string class, everybody mm-hmm. is using the string class. And oh, it's yeah. a very concrete and very complex class. Right. So imagine if you are working at Microsoft and tomorrow you have to modify the string class for whatever reason. Imagine the responsibility you have for oh, all sure. the billions <laughs> right. program uh, that yeah. depends on you. This yeah. is a big pain. How do you regression test that? <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah, that's going to be it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, but actually it's a very difficult class because they have a lot of constraints with the the CLR, the GC, and things right. like that. So, yeah. So, how has this, these principles and patterns impacted how you develop independent and how it integrates with .NET? So, I mean, it's not only about .NET, but typically this, yeah. this pattern are very well suited with C++ and, and okay. Java and whatever, whatever object-oriented you have. Yeah. So, typically, I, I think these patterns are, are good for uh, junior, okay? Mm-hmm. People that are that really wants to write uh, decent code and that want, really want to to do things well, okay? Mm-hmm. And with with experience, when you become like more like a senior developer that have worked in many envi- environments, when you saw things like too big interface, the problem, the kind of problem you have, 
I mean, with with your experience, I think this, those things becomes natural. You can fool me once, but not twice. Kiss principle, etc. All these things, I think it becomes natural. So typically, I would say it's more for junior developer, but if you pretend that you are a senior developer, all these things with also writing tests and all, the, all this, good, this good methodology and pattern, it should be very natural for you. And if, you are not, if it's natural for you, you don't think too much. But certainly you can talk about with your colleague, like I designed it this way, and maybe are, oh, but maybe it's not solid that way. You can you can have some degradation, but if everybody is a senior developer with enough experience in the OOP world, I think this all these things are, are common sense and and becomes natural. And and yes. what's interesting is that uh, I didn't mention, but on this pattern and on, on this principle, there are many many ways. I mentioned a few ones where you can use static analysis and code measurement and things yes. like that. For example, I didn't mention for for the open class open close principle, mm-hmm. uh, a tool can detect if a base class is using some derivative class. Okay, this is very uh, easy to use a yeah. tool. You have rules like that, you see? Right. So you have many rules that can be applied and this is an obvious violation because if you do that, then every, every time you're going to modify the derivative class, I mean, you, can, you cannot do that. You don't have any more point of variation if, right. you, if you have this kind of thing. So typically, tools like NDPEN and other static analysis tools that consider code as data, mm-hmm. they can help you from the data have an objective objective view about your code design and, and help you become a, a better developer by reading all the documentation and, and the pointers and everything. Cool. Sean, I think right the next thing we were going to discuss was the future of .NET. And Patrick, I believe you, you wrote a uh, blog post on this which we'll add to yeah, the show actually, notes. Yeah, earlier this week, it's very new. So, so I wrote a blog post because nowadays, Microsoft did a lot major announcements, maybe with some of the biggest they've done in the past decades, about what will become .NET, about what will be their strategy. We have a lot of good ideas about what will going on, but the problem for all the shops that have been Developing a lot of uh, that have a lot of legacy, like like for us at Independ, and mm-hmm. like for many many other shops worldwide. Like we have a decade of work on a legacy code base, right. and we want to know what will happen to .NET. And at, at that point, we don't know everything about the strategy. But the thing is, I'm pretty sure Microsoft people don't know exactly where they're going to, because it's going to be very big. And they are still thinking about what, what will happen. Okay. So everything starts from the 6th May of this year, 2019, when Microsoft announced that .NET Core, which is mm-hmm. extremely popular these days, four years after its inception, yeah. .NET Core will become the .NET framework, right. the only framework. They will merge all the framework into .NET Core and they will call it .NET 5. Yeah, it, that's going to be a huge shift. Yeah. Yeah. That's a major shift because what is implied is that the good old .NET framework mm-hmm. a lot of people are depending upon won't evolve that much. Right. Or maybe just for security matters, but you won't have more new API. You don't have new new API stuff you have in .NET standard 2.1. Mm-hmm. Okay, you won't have this, right. like the, 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 the span T and, and things like that. You won't have the C-sharp new label things also. So basically, this is a end of an era. Okay, so this will be .NET Reloaded. 
And uh, a lot of questions arise from that. So because at our .NET shop, we are very, very concerned about the future because we mm. have to make some choice now. Uh, this right. is very important. I try to make some prediction, okay? And not everything is clear. I don't blame Microsoft at all because really that's a major shift for them as well, okay? And they right. cannot know everything by now. So I think this will be uh, incremental and step-by-step. Step. So I see it more like uh, they, they announced that the .NET 5 will uh, see the light of the day in November uh, 2020, mm -hmm. something like 13 months from now. But I expect it will take more like two, three years because everything is really, we really f forget everything about the Donate from a for, for an eight and, and so. Right. There's a <laughs> so, lot in there. Yeah. yeah. So they, they, I did four predictions. So first, Donate standard won't evolve much from now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's going to stop at uh, the version 2.1 that is the one existing now. Because actually, .NET standard was the link between the two major flavor, .NET flavor. I mean, there is not two, but there are more. But mostly you have .NET framework, you have .NET core. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, you have also Mono. You have also Xamarin. So .NET core was a way to standardize uh, a common set of interface. Okay. Basically, it replaced, it superseded the, the PCL, the portable class library. This was a way to say, all this uh, collection, string, integer, and more, and actually much more than that, okay, we put right. them into a standard class. So by now, every .NET framework, flav flavor, sorry, uh, should implement that at the minimum. Okay, and this is interesting because then you can compile against .NET standard and have a single DLL used by several .NET framework. This was the intent of the portable class library, but this has been specific. By now, uh, I guess this won't evolve that much because first, it's pretty big. Okay, you mm -hmm. have really a lot of things inside. And, and, and second, there will be only one .NET. One thing to underline is that Microsoft really wanted one .NET for several reasons. First, the tax force is not infinite. Okay, right. the, the workforce, sorry, the, it's not infinite. So uh, at a point, uh, if they have to maintain a four or five uh, .NET flavor, that's going to be very hard for them. And uh, second, .NET Core, which will become .NET 5, is open source, and it's also multi-platform. And not right. everything is multi-platform, like uh, right. Windows Form and WPF, for example, it's supported by .NET Core 3, but it's not, uh, not multi-platform. But it's not also in .NET Standard, so it's not supposed to be to run, uh, don't expect WPF to run on Linux or, or whatever. And actually, this is another another prediction later. So this was the first prediction. The second one is very important for us at Independent and for all the extension. What will happen to Visual Studio? Because Visual Studio is an extremely big beast. Okay, mm -hmm. It's a really, really big, uh, big code base Okay, with hundreds of developers on it. Microsoft is doing a really great work for all these years, like keeping a, a solid IDE, improving it, better performance, etc. So I'm sure, I'm sure Visual Studio is part of the future. Okay, I mean my position. I'm not working at Microsoft, but this is my prediction. Visual Studio will be part of the future, but it means that the engineer at Visual Studio they will have to to re-implement it against a .NET Core or .NET 5 because right. now it's bonded with .NET Framework. And, and this will be a big, big task. So I'm not sure how long it will take, 
don't expect it will be ready for November 2020, but maybe sometime, sometime they are very fast. I was surprised by sometime how fast, how fast they are. But uh, I would say it will take more like two, three years. Maybe it will be incremental. Maybe because Visual Studio has a lot of process behind. So maybe some of this process will be done at core and the main dev, devon process will remain uh, .NET framework for a while. I don't know. I think it'll be a while before Visual Studio gets switched over because you think about it, you know, even Windows has full framework, you know, a lot of dependencies on it in there and they're not going to mm. switch Windows over to, to .NET Core. Actually, just two or three, three or five days, just a few days ago, Satya Nadila, I hope mm-hmm. I pronounce well, so the CEO of Microsoft, right. revealed why Windows may not be the future of Microsoft business. There is an article which is named that. That's wow. That's that's a big. That's really big. A big, yeah. big change for for what. So it doesn't mean at all that Windows is dead, because Microsoft is use if if learning at all this. Now they have a new phone. Okay, right. they have new tablets. They, so, but to me, from what I see, like a lot of professionals are still working on Windows with Visual Studio. This mm-hmm. is an extremely professional environment. Right. With a big, big PC, okay. So to me, uh, it's interesting they, they go to this market, but I'm sure they're not forgetting about what Windows means for professional. Okay. Right. There is also the Azure DevOps things. Okay. Mm-hmm. They make a lot of money with Azure DevOps. It's very central in the, in their, their today's strategy. But, uh, don't, I really don't think that, uh, Windows is dead for at least a decade or maybe especially in the professional environment. I agree with you that sooner, probably sooner rather than later, they're going to have to to change Visual Studio. And I agree with it's probably going to be a lengthy process, but uh, I hope that they are going to be transparent about it because it is going to impact a lot of people and a lot of companies like uh, Independ, right? Because yeah. I Hold think you... You even state, right, that currently you support all the way back to uh, Visual Studio 2010, right? Yeah. And you're, and you're going to have to give some of that up yeah. to be able to move forward. So, yeah. yeah. One of the characteristics of Microsoft technologies is that uh, Asana compatibility has always been a priority. Mm-hmm. And they are very good at it. Uh, you can run SimCity like from 25 ago from <laughs> the, the latest Windows 10 release. So they, they are very good with that. And this is also one key reason for the Netcore I didn't mention is that they are tired of Asana compatibility. Mm. The truth is that uh, they, they, they want uh, innovation and mm-hmm. sometimes innovation means that you have to introduce breaking change. And because one key aspect of the Netcore is that you embed your own runtime and, uh, and, and, and system classes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they, they, they can, they, now, now they want to put some breaking change for innovation. And they were kind of fed up with the net framework that was super uh, Asana compatibility since the very early version. Classes like uh, uh, lists, non-generic lists are still there. They appear mm-hmm. before the generic list, but they are still there. And typically, nobody wants to use it anymore. There is no. <laughs> so, right. so they they are a bit tired about about this. And this was this is another point for for the net core and all this move with all the, the mentioned point before. So yes, so Visual Studio are. I think it will be kind of transparent. Maybe not for extension provider like us and like many, but I think that for typical users that use Visual Studio for their own productivity application, I think I think it should be transparent. 
But for us, it's very important to know what will happen. And there is mm-hmm. also a, a controversy about the, the famous Visual Studio running in a 32-bit process. Right. So there have been a lot of talk, a lot of users unhappy because if their code base is too large or if they are using extension that consume too much memory, and I won't say any name, but it's not independent. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, then, then Visual Studio starts to grow two, three gigabytes, and it's 32-bit process, then it starts freezing or out of exception and things like that. So what's interesting is that for Microsoft, this is more a feature okay, mm-hmm. than, uh, than a problem because they say that this way things go faster with less memories because the pointer are only four bytes and not eight bytes, for example. Mm. There is a lot of controversy. I don't want to enter in it. But if they go to, and they will go to the .NET 5 and more, mm. I hope we can expect uh, X64 process Visual Studio within the next years. This is uh, another key aspect for the ones that are, are working on very, very large applications. Personally, uh, in our team, we don't suffer that much about this process size even though our code base is big. Also, Visual Studio is delegating a lot of work to outside process, which are x64, like all the compiler and analysis things. It's, it happens outside, outside dev.exe. So this is maybe another aspect to consider. Then another, another prediction is about the cross-platform UI framework because .NET Core is very good for all the high-speed Core things, all mm-hmm. the web things, okay? Mm-hmm. This right. is central for .NET Core. So they are very good at it. And also, now .NET Core embed uh, WinForm and WPF, but on Windows only. This is very important. It's not cross-platform. Okay? And they did it because they, they, they have a lot of telemetry, you know, uh, Visual Studio, and they, and they, they finally tuned. And they, they, it was really obvious that those two UI technologies were, were still used a lot. A lot of new projects are started with WPF or Windows Form. So it was not possible for them to abandon it. What is interesting is that with NDPEN, uh, I compare the API. So independently, I compare the WinForm and WPF API in .NET Core and in.NET Framework. It's really 99.9% compatibility. It means that applications that are going to migrate it or that will be migrated, the good news is that all your API will be there, even the very tricky uh, GDI or whatever API you can imagine, they, they are here. So this is the good news. But still, nowadays, the world, I mean, for a long time, the world is lacking a good cross-platform UI framework. I look carefully at, uh, at all the forum and uh, the, the discussion and things like that. And you can see some interesting things. For example, this year in August, Microsoft did a pool about if people want such a cross-platform UI to be also mm-hmm. available in .NET. So they asked in the pool. And you, of course, you get hundreds of answers and debate and sometimes insult as well. <laughs> as because it's internet. <laughs> but uh, they are thinking about it, certainly. So today you have a few possibilities like uh, Avalonia, like WinUI, okay, like Xamarin Forms, okay. So you have some frameworks like that. I'm not sure it will, they, they, those one receive so much loves from users, I mean, from the community. This is just my opinion, and uh, I don't want to hurt anyone. 
and maybe I'm totally wrong on that. Uh, I don't have all the telemetry needed for that, but this is just my opinion. So, so maybe, maybe we'll see such a framework. Maybe it could be WPF, but uh, in December 2018 in a forum, which lender, which is very big in the .NET sphere at Microsoft, right. say it was a big no-no. It's not possible to port WPF on another platform. But well, WPF that, is open source, so maybe yeah. who knows? Who knows what will happen? With you know that that actually leads me to your your fourth prediction, which is that Blazor has a bright future. Do you think Blazor could be that cross-platform framework? Right, because uh, I think Steve Sanderson's even even got Blazor running in in like an Electron app on your desktop. So it's a desktop yeah. application, right? I don't know. This is think? part of the possible. Yeah, yeah. This point. right. <laughs> sorry, right. sorry, I cannot say yes, certainly. But yeah. really, it's part of the possible. But we have also to... Microsoft is going to certainly play something on that. But uh, maybe the thing they will choose, the framework, the UI framework mm-hmm. they will choose, maybe this this is not what the community will want. We have to remember the, the, the Silverlight fiasco. Right. Uh, like Microsoft put a lot of energy in it and a lot of customers went with that. And at a point, it was a big no-no. But hopefully, uh, the Blazor doesn't have all this problem that Silverlight had, like mm-hmm. uh, the browser plugin and things like that. So yeah, yeah the, the first prediction is about Blazor is promised to a bright future because uh, thanks to the web assembly, because Bla- Blazor mm-hmm. is basically .NET into your browser with mm-hmm. a real assembly with IL code. Okay, and this mm-hmm. gets compiled into your browser into web assemblies. Right. Okay, this is what it's all about. And what's interesting is that web assembly is implemented by all the major browsers nowadays. Right. Okay, Firefox, Edge, uh, Chrome, okay, Opera, etc. Mm-hmm. So it's de facto supported. Okay, it's really big. It's also compiled with uh, to assembly level. You have near native performance with that. So this is very, very big. And also you have a co- components pre-compiled to a binary f- format, unlike JavaScript. And, and we can see a major adoption. This is, I invite you to go to all the forum and the, the video from Steve Sanderson to see how enthusiastic are people. Okay, well, so of course, you have the early um, enthusiasts, but, but a lot of people are there. We've done a podcast with Daniel Roth all about Blazor. And we talked at length about, you know, how Steve started this and, and where the idea came from. And I know Sean is definitely on board, right? It's Yeah, I'm it's, one of those enthusiastic people that are really looking towards towards Blazor. And I think they really learned a lot with the Silverlight and all the mm-hmm. issues with there. So I, I think Blazor is a much better product that they could use to go, you know, fully cross-platform. Versus yeah. what Silverlight was. Yeah, maybe it will happen. But on the other side, if you look at, I come, I come back to the WPF, but mm-hmm. imagine if Microsoft is porting WPF to other platform, all the, all the big applications depending on WPF, like Visual Studio, for example, can become multi-platform. Because now, nowadays, um, Microsoft, they have a Visual Studio for Mac, Mac which is right. dependent on Visual Studio, for example. So they yeah. have several Products branded as Visual Studio, but but the fact is that they are different projects. If, right. if you look at the code level, so maybe they want also to to, to 
I don't I don't expect WPF to be the solution for everybody on all platform, but it certainly makes sense to to be ported and maybe the open source community is gonna do that. Maybe Microsoft is gonna change their position and, and do it. I, I don't know. But so, something will happen with the, the XAML uh, XAML based uh, UI. And uh, this will be very interesting to see what uh, what will happen. One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. My pick this week is a, a, it's a console emulator that I use. It's really nice. It gives you a tabbed consoles and shell. So you can either have a tab for PowerShell, a tab for you know, CMD, and so on and so forth. It's called uh, ConEMU. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So if anybody's looking for a new console or terminal to use in Windows, uh, check this out. So Caleb, what's your pick this week? Yeah, uh, my pick for this week is uh, actually um, Packed Pub. They're, they're a publishing house, primarily tech stuff, and they have a free learning page where you can download one of their um, books every day for free. So I had, uh, we'll add it to the show notes. Nice. So Patrick, have you thought of something that you could let everybody else know about <laughs> that, that you're interested in? Like say, doesn't have to be tech, can be anything uh, you want. I, I did, uh, during my studies, I did also a lot of mathematics as a, lot, uh, a software engineer. And uh, as, a, as many software engineers I know, I'm a bit frustrated to know all, all these big math things, all these big math theory, but apply so few of them in my daily job. You know, when you, when you did like uh, many years in mathematics, you, you end up writing some code, which is a very interesting job, and I, I love it. But then you have also all these things. So the thing is that sometimes it's uh, not all the time, but sometimes for a month or, of, or two, I like to go back to a mathematical subject and uh, don't do any math because I'm not anymore in the study, but trying to understand what's happening. And these last two months, I've been very picky about uh, the most famous hypothesis in the math world, which is the Riemann hypothesis. Okay, this is a, a very interesting hypothesis. So basically, a Riemann hypothesis is a way to know where the, the prime number is. And it's very related to cryptography as well. Sorry, cryptography is entirely based on prime number. And there is a big, big, big conjecture. Uh, I won't describe here because it's, uh, it's not... Uh, <laughs> it would take uh, two or three podcasts to just scratch the surface. <laughs> but uh, I have a very, very good link uh, yeah. in mind that I will share with you. Great. A 20-minute video that is absolutely marvelous. Okay. And, uh, that everyone can watch and it's uh, wow, wow. It's, uh, it's someone that uh, is doing some math video on YouTube. And, and frankly, I've never seen such a good educational video. It's absolutely a must-see for anyone interested in math. Awesome. Well, Patrick, thank you for joining us today. It's been, been good. I've enjoyed the, the talk. Yeah, me, me too, very much. Yeah, great. Yeah, it was real interesting. So hopefully a lot of the listeners got stuff out of this. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.